All right, guys, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Man, it's nice to uh, have the opportunity to preach this morning. It's been a few weeks for me. Uh, Justin preached, and then we had Luke Allen here preaching as well before Christmas, which was great. And, uh, and then we didn't have a sermon Christmas Eve, and so it's been a little while for me. So I'm glad to be here and excited to get into uh, the Minor Prophets again with you guys. So we have just a few weeks of the Minor Prophets left, um, and we will have completed our study of all 12 of these books. And so by the end of February, we'll be done with all of that, and then we will be jumping into the Gospel of John, where we will be for the rest of the year. Since, though, it has been over a month since we last looked at any of the Minor Prophets, I want to begin today with just a quick overview of where we've been and where we are now. And uh, let me just start with a little bit of a timeline and remind us that the period that uh, encompasses the time of the Minor Prophets is a period in the history of Israel that spanned about 400 years, from around 785 all the way over here to 430 B.C. It's the period of the Minor Prophets. And in the middle of that uh, is roughly a like 190-something year period of exile. And that starts somewhere around 732 and goes all the way to 538 And so that gives us basically three distinct subdivisions of this time period, which we call uh, the first period the pre-exilic period, this middle period the exilic period, and then the final period the post-exilic period. And that's where we are right now is in that post-exilic era. And within this span of time, we have these 12 minor prophets who are proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. They're not the only prophets that are declaring God's word during this time period. They're considered minor prophets, if you recall, primarily because their books are small. These books that encompass the 12 books of the minor prophets are just shorter than some of the other so-called major prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel. You could possibly make the case, though, that the major prophets were more significant voices in the history of Israel. Guys like Isaiah, guys like Jeremiah, that maybe their voices, their prophecy carried a little bit more weight with the people. Uh, but either way, this is the word of God that's being declared here. And um, in each of these eras, there are four prophets that we have looked at. Um, in the pre-exilic period, the nation, if you recall, is divided by a civil war. Uh, it's divided into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Uh, all of it's Israel in God's eyes, though they're all his people in his eyes. Um, those pre-exilic prophets were Jonah and Amos and Hosea and Micah. Um, eventually, though, 732 the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria. They're conquered. The people are carried away. This begins the exilic age. And during this exilic time period, we hear from four more minor prophets, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah. They're declaring the word of the Lord to the remaining kingdom of Judah in the south. And then in 586... 
The southern kingdom of Judah is also conquered, but this time not by the Assyrians, but the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar and his army come in, they ransack the land, they destroy Jerusalem, and they kidnap the people and literally carry them away to the city of Babylon, where they live. When we get to 538, though, the Persians overtake the Babylonians, and they begin to allow the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem and back to their land. And so not only can we look at these three time periods as being pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic, we can also kind of define them by the prominent superpower that was in power during these time periods. So you have like the Assyrian era, you have the Babylonian period, you have the Persian period, and there are distinctives with each of these time periods. The people live in Babylon for around 70 years before they're allowed to return. And when they return, they return to a land that is decimated, right? They return to a Jerusalem that is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The wall around the city is destroyed. Everything has to be rebuilt. Not only is that the case, but when they return, they are not fully free people. They're still under the thumb of the Persians. The Persians have been gracious to allow them to return and to allow them to uh, kind of readopt some of their religious customs, but they have to pay taxes to the Persians. And in many cases, these were significant um, and debilitating taxes that they have to pay. During this final time period, uh, we've looked at two of the prophets that are declaring the word of the Lord. We've looked at Haggai and Joel. And then starting today, we jump into the book of Zechariah, and then we will wrap up with the tiny book of Malachi. And so that gives us a little bit of a trajectory, a little bit of a timeline. Today, as we begin the book of Zechariah, if there has been any kind of united message throughout all of this, it has been a call from the Lord to obedience and faithfulness. Obedience and faithfulness, a call for the people of God to put God first, to stop worshiping false gods, and to treat other people in the way that God would have them be treated. In other words, the message was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that the nation has returned from exile, that message continues. It's never changed. But during this time period, in particular, God has called people, yes, to be obedient to him, yes, to love their neighbors as themselves, but also specific, specifically to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which was a massive undertaking. As we've talked about in the past, Solomon's temple, the first temple, the temple that was destroyed, was this grandiose, ornate, intricate, almost luxurious palace that people would come from all around the known world to see and to experience. It was such a massive wonder of the world, but it's gone. Once the people return, even though they have the manpower, they're not necessarily skilled laborers, but they have people to do the work and they have some of the financial resources to do the work, but their scope is much smaller. They very quickly lay the foundations of the temple during the time of Haggai, but eventually the work kind of stalls out, and the temple has not been finished when we get to Zechariah, who's 20 years or so after the time of Haggai, after the time in which the people 
started returning to the land. And so as we pick up in Zechariah, the temple's not finished, and the people are discouraged. And what they wonder is, where is God? Like, is he absent? Has he forgotten us? Is he going to fulfill some of the things that he said he would do through the prophets? Is he going to restore the fortunes of Israel? Is he going to return us to our former glory? This is what many of the people were asking at this time. And so enter Zechariah, a priest who also returned from exile in Babylon around the time of Haggai, who is sent by God to declare his word to this discouraged people. And so let's look this morning at the first part of chapter 1 of Haggai. We'll have this on the screen as well. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the word of the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The word of the Lord. So we begin in a very typical way in this prophet. We get a date, uh, we get a king, we get a prophet, we get a quick genealogy, and we get a word from the Lord. This is how so many of these books have started. Uh, the date is the second year of Darius, who was the Persian king at this time. And so this would put us somewhere around 520 BC, almost 20 years after the people started returning to Judah. The prophet that's presented to us is this guy, Zechariah. We get a little taste of his genealogy, even though we don't you know, this doesn't mean anything to us. It would have meant something to the original hearers and readers. He was the son of Berechiah, um, who was the son of Iddo. But then we get this word of the Lord, and the word is this, return to me. Return to me, and I will return to you. Look to the past, God says, and do not be like your fathers who ignored the prophets I sent to them and who just continued on in their sin. They just pressed on in following their own way. I love how the message renders this passage. It says, come back to me and I'll come back to you. Don't be like your parents. The old time prophets called out to them a message from God of the angel armies. That's how the message renders that Lord of hosts phrase, God of the angel armies, leave your evil life, quit your evil practices. But they ignored everything I said to them and stubbornly refused to listen. And where are your ancestors now? Dead and buried. And the prophets who preached to them, also dead and buried. But the message that my servants, the prophets spoke, that isn't dead and buried. In other words, times have changed 
Faces have changed, circumstances have changed, but God's word has not changed. It's almost the exact same thing that God said through the prophet Isaiah when he said, um, what, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The thing that I have always wanted from you and for you is still the same. And so he calls them to learn from the mistakes of the past, to recommit themselves to the Lord, and to move forward. And for those of us who are reading these words and are hearing these words this morning, could there be a better message for us as we step into a brand new year to to look to the past and to learn from the mistakes of the past and to recommit ourselves to the Lord and move forward? God wants his people to do a few things in today's text. First of all, look to the past. And in looking to the past, I think there are two areas that God wants the people to examine. One is that they would examine the mistakes of their forefathers, that they would examine the mistakes of their parents, as the message said. And then also that they would examine the steadfastness and faithfulness of God, the fact that God has not changed, his call has not changed, his message has not changed. And there is, especially in today's world, something deeply compelling about the unchanging nature of God. So let me, let me just kind of tackle the first one here, this idea of examining the mistakes of your forefathers. God says in verse 4, do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. God says your ancestors made many mistakes, But their biggest mistake was this, they didn't listen to me. It wasn't just simply that they were engaged in sinful behavior, like we all do sinful things. It was that the Lord in his mercy extended grace to them in the form of calling them to repentance in sending them the prophets, and they refused to listen to him. They just wouldn't hear it. And where are they now, he asks, dead and gone right? Their sin has caught up with them. One of the most dangerous things that we can do, I think, is ignore the voice of God, is to not listen to him, is to go after our own way or do what we think is best. But we also have the benefit of being able to look at the mistakes of previous generations and hopefully not repeat them. It's not just us. They had this benefit as well. They could have done this. And we see this in our world today. Like chattel slavery is no longer a thing that exists here in America because people have looked at the actions of previous generations and have called it sin and have turned down a different road. But I should also point out that even when a generation looks to the past and sees the sin and recognizes it and calls it out and turns from it, it doesn't mean that the ramifications and repercussions of that past sin suddenly goes away. Like we're we're still dealing with the repercussions of slavery 150 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And the same thing was true in Israel. Even if Zechariah's generation listened to God and learned from the mistakes of their ancestors, they were still living powerless in a bombed out country because of the sin of their ancestors, right? 
They're still dealing with the effects of it. They were still tasked with having to rebuild the temple because of the sin of their ancestors. And so even if their lives were different, they still have to deal with the reverberations of what has happened in the past. And you see this in your own life as well. You see this in your own family as well. You see mistakes that have been made by your parents or by your grandparents that still reverberate through the family. If your grandfather was an abusive alcoholic, those effects still reverberate through your family in some form or fashion. If your mother had multiple affairs, those repercussions still resonate. If your parents went through a tumultuous divorce, those effects still move on in your family. And and part of the reason that God calls Zachariah's generation to live differently is not just because he desires moral and upright living. It's not just because he wants people to be good boys and girls, but also because God knows that righteous living will also reverberate. Right? It will also transcend generations. Listen, we have to understand that our actions and decisions now affect not just us and not just our spouse, but our children and our grandchildren and possibly even further down the road. Like God is calling his people to not just turn from their sin, but to set a new trajectory for what it means to be his people for generations to come. Not just the present generation. So look to the past, learn from it, and then chart a new course. A new course of obedience to the Lord. Next, he calls the people to consider your own heart. Consider your own heart. And and this is, I think, more implicit than it is explicit in the text. But gaining an appreciation for the mistakes of the past should also cause us to look at our own hearts and consider the ways that previous sin has shaped us, the ways that previous sin has shaped our lives. So when I was a kid, the rule in our house um, was that you couldn't get up from the table until you had cleaned your plate. And if we went out to dinner, the rule was you could order whatever you wanted on the menu, and mom and dad would pay for it, but you had to eat all of it. You had to eat every bite of it. And um, one night in the early 90s, our family went out to this hot new restaurant here in Bossier that was you know, taking the shreveport Bossier culinary world by storm, <laughs> Red Lobster. And because I could order anything I wanted on the menu, I ordered the crab meat Alfredo, which comes out in a bowl about this big at Red Lobster. And I remember my parents said, are you sure? You sure that's what you want? I was maybe 10, 11 at the time. It's pretty big. But I was confident, right? I could do it. And so I got through a good 50% of it and uh, realized that everybody else at the table was done eating. And I still had a good ways to go and thought, you know, I'll get some grace here. Uh, But instead, my dad said, no, we're going to sit here until you finish that. And um, the clock started ticking. Uh, We had come in separate vehicles that night, so the rest of our family left 
and went home. The restaurant started to clear out. I'll, I'll never forget the waitress came over and asked me if I wanted to help do dishes in the kitchen because it's just me and my dad sitting there, and he's just kind of sitting there with his arms crossed. You're going to finish this. And so we sat, I don't know how long we were there, but it, was, it seemed like a long time. And I was like, I can't do it. I'm going to vomit everywhere, right? And um, yet, I choked down this crab au gratin, or crab alfredo. And um, I look back at that now, and I go, where did that come from, right? This, you have to eat everything on your plate, right? Where did that come from? Well, I was important that I ate all my food, and it's more than likely a generational thing. You know, for this generation whose parents went through the Depression, you didn't waste anything, right? You know, you ate dirt, and you were thankful to have dirt, right? It was that kind of thing. And so this generation that experienced that same kind of thing just passes it on. And so more than likely, my dad was just doing what had been done to him as a kid. And now that I'm a father, the easiest thing would be uh, to just pass on that same thing to my kids, right? Or to like completely rebel against it and take two bites of every plate and then throw the rest away just to spite my parents every time I ate a meal. Those are like the two easiest options. And... And yet the harder thing to do is to look to the past and then to consider my own heart and my own tendency to sin and then to make a wise decision that's rooted in the word of God. Not just what has been done to me, but what's actually righteous and honoring to God. So the call here is to return to the Lord and no matter your level of spiritual maturity, there are still parts of you that need to be returned to the Lord. There are still parts of you affected by not only the sin of other people in the past, but also by your own sin. One of the problems with modern psychology is that you can come away with this notion that any problem that I have, any fear that I have, any anxiety that I carry, that that's all the result of what other people have done to me or around me or trauma that I've experienced in my life. And what the scripture would say is, no, that's only half of the equation. There is an element of that that is very much true, like we are shaped by our experiences. But then the Bible also says, and you're a sinner. So you have your own sin to deal with, while you're also dealing with the ramifications of the sin of others in your life. And so it just kind of creates this perfect storm for us. But we can't blame everything on other people. The Bible also calls us to look at our own hearts and to take an honest account of our own sin and to return to the Lord, not just to forgive other people as we should, but ourselves to return to the Lord. And then number three Right? We're looking to the past, we're examining our own heart, and then as a result, we live differently. So this is a process of repentance, 
if you haven't picked up on that. This is what Zechariah, the Lord through Zechariah, is calling the people to, a process of repentance. But it's bringing to light not only our own sin, but also the ways that our sin can be shaped by the sin of the past. The Bible talks a great deal about wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness. And biblical wisdom has to do with following the Lord's blueprint for life. The wise person is the one who looks to the past, who sees the Lord's faithfulness, who considers his own heart, and who then lives differently, right? The antithesis of the wise man in the scriptures, though, is the fool. The fool is sort of an archetype that we find, especially in the Old Testament, talks a lot about the fool in the poetical literature, like the Psalms and the Proverbs. But a biblical fool may not be what you think. It may not be the way you use that word today. Consider these verses. Proverbs 8.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So in other words, 90% of people who are on social media. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Ecclesiastes 7, be not quick to become angry in your spirit for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Fools are the ones who hold on to anger and who care for it and kind of nurture it. But then the quintessential verse, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But we may use that word in a little bit of a different way in today's world. For us, a fool is someone who's just dumb or stupid or silly, like the phrase act the fool is a part of our world, which means basically behave like a moron, right? But in the scriptures... The fool is someone who thinks he doesn't need God, who thinks he's fine on his own, on his own path, on his own trajectory, doing what he wants to do. Not necessarily even like an atheist, but like someone who just thinks that they are self-sufficient and they have no need of the Lord. And so to that end, Paul Tripp calls it a deadly combination of arrogance and ignorance, a deadly combination of arrogance and ignorance. So a fool could be a religious person, or a fool could be an irreligious person, but wisdom is the opposite. Wisdom is believing and living as if you have great need of God, great need of God. Because you look to the past and you recognize that you're dealing with problems in your life because of things that you didn't do that were done to you or even generations before did. But then you also look at your own life and you see your own sin. You see your own propensity to foolishness. And when you take an honest account of that, how could you arrive at any other place except to say, woe is me, much like Isaiah, like I, I'm kind of hopeless here. Right? I can't seem to fix anything. I can't seem to really do anything right. And I certainly can't seem to do anything that would make any difference for me eternally. So we're all on a journey of overcoming our tendency to be fools. To live life in such a way that says, I don't really need God. I'm fine. I can, I can do it on my own. 
Paul instructs his young apprentice, Titus, to counsel his church in this way. He says, be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us from that, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul says, outside of Christ, we are all fools. We have no ability to save ourselves. We aren't submissive. We aren't obedient. We aren't ready for every good work. We are speaking evil of others. We're quarreling. We aren't gentle. We aren't being courteous towards all people. We're living as fools, which is exactly what Zechariah was pointing us back to in the history of Israel. You want to see fools? Look at your forebears. Look at your ancestors who ignored the voice of God. We don't need him. We don't want what he's selling. So the trajectory that God is calling Israel and us to here is pretty clear. Examine the foolishness of the past and previous generations in your own life, but then examine my faithfulness. Examine my unchanging nature. Examine my ability to take fools who are hopeless and to turn them into wise men and women. Consider your own heart and live differently. In God's economy, the way of wisdom is surrender to Christ. It's abandonment to Christ. I love the way that Paul characterizes this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, listen, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, so many people look at what Christ has done, and they look at the message of the gospel, and they say, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's unscientific. It's foolishness. But Paul says, but for those of us who are being saved by it, it is true wisdom. He goes on, and he reminds us of The words of Isaiah, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. There are so many people in our world who claim wisdom, wisdom that's not the kind of wisdom we're talking about, wisdom that's apart from Christ, prudence that's apart from Christ, and he says, I will destroy that kind of wisdom. He goes on, he says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world through wisdom did not know God. Meaning, there are all of these people who think themselves to be wise, but their wisdom has led them down the path of death. It hasn't led them to know God. The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God, Paul says, through the foolishness of the message preached, the message of the cross, to save those who believe. So it pleases God. It like brings him pleasure to take this message of Christ, this message of death and resurrection that seems ridiculous and comical and foolish to so many people in our world. It gives God pleasure that that is the way that true wisdom is found. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Those who believe themselves to be wise see the cross of Christ as foolishness. God said, though, that he would crush that kind of wisdom ultimately. And so Paul says the wisdom of God is upside down from the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So let me close with three questions this morning. I would encourage you to write these down in your time with the Lord this week. Spend some time with these questions, um, kind of examining your own life, your own heart. Number one, what are the areas of your life where you live functionally as if you don't need God? What are the areas of your life where you functionally live as if you don't need God? You may not realize you're doing this, but, but what is it? In other words, where are you being a fool right now? Where are you being a fool right now? Is it at work? Do, do you do your work as if you have no need of God when you get to the office? Do you parent your kids as if you have no need of God? As if you've got it figured out, you've listened to all the podcasts, right? You've read all the right blogs. I've got this parenting thing down. I don't need God. Uh, do you deal with your money as if it's, it's yours alone and I just get to decide whatever I do with it? I have no need of God. I don't need his input and in how I spend my money. What is it? Where are you being a fool right now in your life? Because for every single one of us, myself included, there's probably multiple areas where this is true. Next, how do you respond to the foolishness of others around you so as to lead them toward true wisdom? Or I could put it this way, parents, how do you respond to the foolishness of your children so as to lead them toward true wisdom? Do you ever find that the foolishness of other people brings out foolishness in you? That the sin of other people brings out sin in you? The way that other people follow their own path and act as if they have no need of God can elicit the same kind of response from you? How do you respond to the foolishness of others around you? This could be coworkers, this could be family members, this could be your children, this could be neighbors. People in your life, how are you trying to lead them toward true wisdom, this, this wisdom that might seem like foolishness to them? 
And then question three, what are the areas of your life where you are on what I would call generational autopilot? Where you're just regurgitating the stuff that was put into you. Where you're just doing to others what was done unto you without any thought or consideration as to whether or not it is right or good or righteous. Look to the past, consider your own heart, and live differently. Consider who we were and what our fate was, and then what has happened through Christ. And repent. Walk differently, be different, live differently, pursue different things. Allow the foolishness of the cross to become the wisdom of your life. Let us pray. Our Father, uh, what a joy this morning to be back together and to enter into this new year considering this timeless message that your call is not just to be moral people, but your call is for us to be people who find their wisdom in Christ alone and who are forever shaped and changed by the wisdom of the cross. God, give us your grace in illuminating the areas of our life where we still have a tendency to live as fools. Father, help us to see possibly the triggers within us that um, that ultimately lead us to do foolish things rather than pointing people towards true wisdom. As parents, as friends, as neighbors, as coworkers, as leaders, as bosses, God, give us your grace to be so ruled by your spirit that we constantly have a mindset to point people toward the wisdom of the gospel. And Father, may we continually continually live lives of repentance. May we not live in this dangerous state of like arrogance and ignorance, but instead may we constantly see ourselves as people in need of a Savior, being sanctified, being matured and grown up into Christ. And Father, may we find joy in putting sin to death. I pray that over us this morning as we enter into this new year. Give us your grace, God. So that when we get to this point next year that we can look back and see that we are in a very different place as individuals and as a church family. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.